boy holla at your boy we're here um we got a jam-packed show when i tell you what's happening with iran you're gonna want to shit your pants i hereby give you permission to shit your pants because <laughs> obviously you needed my permission in order to shit your pants if you just shit your pants without getting prior approval from kyle klinsky of secular talk well then you're you you're messing up Um, The clock was also pushed back decades on the issue of reproductive rights, and uh uh-oh, SpaghettiOs on that. The details of that are crazy. It's a law that's so extreme on the issue of abortion that even Pat Robertson is like, hey, dog, I don't know what we're doing here. This is kind of crazy. We shouldn't be doing this. (laughs) When Pat Robertson is disagreeing with your take on abortion and he's pivoted to the left of you, Well, goodness gracious me. Um, Elizabeth Warren decided to throw some haymakers at Fox. Normally I would like that. But on this one, I have mixed feelings because, well, I don't want to spoil the story now, but just know that um, by extension, she's throwing Bernie under the bus with the stuff that she said. And if there's anything I can't stand, it's throwing Bernie Sanders under a bus because Bernie Sanders is dad. Um... We also have bet on my stork. He can't stop apologizing. Joe Biden is continuing to make an ass of himself. Now he's leading in the polls, but as I predicted for a long time, I think he's going he's gonna to fall off at some point. I don't know exactly when, but I think he is going to fall off at some point. Tulsi Gabbard went on Joe Rogan's show and um, said some great stuff. 
said some great stuff. I won't ruin it. Uh, I won't spoil it further, but uh, when we get to the story, you'll hear it. So anyway, without further ado, let's get started, and uh, we'll kick it off with the issue of Iran, because the details of this story, I mean, this is probably the most important issue right now in the world, um, because peace um, is very volatile, to say the least. So anyway, here we go. So the U.S. is starting to build up for war with Iran. This is really terrifying. It's terrifying particularly because this is, an, this is a choice. This is the U.S. government actively deci- deciding, yes, we want to try to do regime change. And now, in the process of watching this unfold, you can see the immense levels of bullshit that are being spoon-fed to the American public. The media is using weasel words like, oh, we are sliding into war with Iran. You know, they, they use these passive verbs as if we're sitting back and it's all just happening when, no, there was a decision made, a decision by John Bolton, Mike Pompeo, the neocons in the administration, and Donald Trump is seemingly fine with it, Um, And the decision is we're going to try to do regime change in Iran, and they have terrible, you know, rationalizations after the fact where they try to pretend like what we're doing is defensive, and that's beyond laughable. So look at this. At the direction of National Security Advisor John Bolton, Acting Defense Secretary Patrick Shanahan last week presented top White House national security officials with a plan to send up to 120,000 troops to the Middle East in the event that Iran, quote, attack American forces or accelerate work on nuclear weapons, the New York Times reports. The details are the plan was reportedly presented during a meeting about the Trump administration's broader Iran policy, uh, attended, among others, by Bolton CIA Director Gina Haspel, who literally ordered torture, Joint Chiefs of Staff Chairman General Joseph Dunford and Director of National Intelligence Dan Coats. These are all neocons. It's unclear if President Trump has been briefed on the details of the plan, which did not call for a land invasion of Iran, but requested a similar number of troops involved uh, in the U.S.'s 2003 invasion of Iraq, per the Times. So uh, this this is scary because it's just, it's a mirror image of what happened with the war in Iraq. So who was it who was out on TV the other day? Oh, Tom Cotton. Again, one of the biggest hawks on the planet. He was saying, like, oh, are you kidding me? For a war uh, in Iran, uh, we'll be in and out. It'll be a two-month thing. You just do a couple of strikes, boom, boom. We're done, and we're outskis, bro. There's no problem here. And it's like, oh, my God, oh, my God. This is literally the exact same shit that, like, Bill Kristol and Paul Wolfowitz and Donald Rumsfeld were saying for the war in Iraq. Oh, it's cool. We're going to be greeted as liberators. We're going to be in and out. The oil's going to pay for the war. This is going to be, you know, we'll be... It'll be bringing freedom and democracy, and there are no downsides to this. And it's just history is repeating itself. And listen, you have a guy like John Bolton, who was one of the chief architects of the war in Iraq, which is was an illegal offensive war against a country that didn't attack us. And now he's right back in this administration, and he's driving the ship. And it is um, incredibly scary. So if you think that they aren't serious about this, the fact that they're uh, – they're drawing up plans that involve 120,000 troops 
to act like, and again, the media parroted this, well, you know, this wouldn't uh, require a land invasion of Iran, then how the fuck are 120,000 troops involved? It's journalistic malpractice the way that this stuff is covered, because whatever the officials in the government say, the people in the media are just stenographers to power, so they frame it as like, well, even though it would be 120,000 troops, they say it wouldn't require a land invasion, so we're just going to write it wouldn't require a land invasion. You're supposed to hold them accountable. You're supposed to ask the follow-up questions. So how the fuck do you mean 120,000 troops are involved, but it's not, it's not a ground invasion? What the fuck are you talking about? That makes zero sense. And again, they're uh, also framing everything as, well, it's, it's defensive. So please, bitches in the media, write, like a, write an article saying it's defensive. And uh, here's a good example of that from CBS. Iran or Iranian-backed proxies used explosives, oh please, to blow holes in four ships, two Saudi oil tankers, and two others near the Strait of Hormuz, according to an initial assessment of the U.S. team sent to investigate. They want us to believe that Iran attacked Saudi oil tankers and two others, and they also want us to believe, as uh, we reported I believe it was on the last show that, oh, Iran is going to target our troops in Syria, and they're going to target our troops elsewhere, and there's going to be, we have intelligence that says there's an offensive attack that they're going to do against us. So again, this is to try to build the narrative of like, us? No, little old USA, we didn't do nothing wrong at all, Papa, and we're just we're just going on the defense to try to protect ourselves, Papa. That's all we're doing. What a sick joke. Again, if the media was half decent, there would be at least a line about they haven't presented any evidence of this. You know, there's, there's no reason to believe it. I mean, the original source they're claiming is Israeli intelligence. Israel has openly wanted to attack Iran for, like, well over a decade. Netanyahu is on the record as saying he wants to attack Iran. So now we're supposed to believe that Israeli intelligence officials, all these unnamed, by the way, uh, are just, well, we're just saying, we just happened to, to uncover a plot that this tiny rinky-dink country with a gnat of a military is going to offensively attack the United States and, and us, and, and Saudi Arabia, and we're just acting defensively. Oh, my God, they're, su- they're such liars. They're so full of shit. And also, 120,000 troops sent to Iran to protect Saudi oil tankers? Go ahead. Go make that case to a poor kid from Kentucky who had no opportunity growing up, and he went to the military because he felt like there were no other options, and it was his way maybe out of poverty. And now you're going to send him to Iran to maybe die in a war that would dwarf the war in Iraq over a Saudi oil tanker. And again, I don't even believe it. Let me, I'm just going to go on the record right now. I don't believe a word of what the Israeli intelligence officials said and what the U.S. intelligence officials said. I don't believe a word of it. Not even close. Not even close. But even if you did believe it, they attacked a Saudi oil tanker, and it's, it's like, okay, let's go sacrifice our young American uh, men and women at the altar of the Saudi petrodollar. This is insane, man. 
This is absolutely insane. The fact that Donald Trump is basically doing the exact thing he said he wouldn't do when he was on the campaign trail, that tells you everything about the kind of person Donald Trump is. And, you know, there have been little articles here and there like, oh, he's not so sure about this, you know, this move from John Bolton to try to topple the Venezuelan government. And every now and then he tweets something like, you know, we're getting out of Afghanistan. We're getting out of Syria. But just understand, the policy is never matching that stuff. The policy never matches the the knee-jerk tweets. The policy never matches... The whispers to the media about, oh, Trump isn't so sure about toppling another government. The, uh, the policy is matching the most conceivably uber-hawkish um, path forward. That's what it matches. And best case scenario is he's just totally ineffectual, and he's sitting back and letting this happen, and his feelings are like, I'm not, I don't think I like this, but whatever, I'm going to let the professionals, you know, steer the ship here. Worst case scenario is, yeah, he's a politician, he talks out of both sides of his mouth, but he's actively cheering on all this stuff, and he's totally fine with the regime change approach. You know, Donald Trump, there are things he said in the past that lead me to believe that he would be massively hawkish, even though sometimes he says the opposite. Because he's, he's framed it before as, like, not fighting, not doing military invasions, not bombing, as, like, that's weak. And it's, he frames strength as smart. He said it before in regards to the border, too. Like, oh, like, we need to shut down the border because we got all these bad people, these criminals coming in and all these drugs coming in. And we got to be smart. We got to be smart about this. So in his mind, the more hawkish you are, the more ruthless you are. In the case of Iran and Venezuela, the more offensive you are. Well, that's not just tougher; that's also smarter. Which is why he has a guy like John Bolton in, in his administration. Why he has Mike Pompeo in his administration. Because despite his instincts in terms of campaigning, where half the time he said, "We're going to have these wars. We're going to rebuild our own country." Again, the policy is not matching that even a little bit. So, I, I mean, we're literally trying to topple the Venezuelan government and the Iranian government at the same time. I mean, you want to talk about a waste of resources? You want to talk about massive violations of international law and, and creating a humanitarian crisis? We have a country where our infrastructure is crumbling. We have many places, including Flint, Michigan, that don't have clean water. And now we're thinking of putting all of our efforts to overthrowing the Iranian government? It's so hard to wrap your mind around. We're watching this dumpster fire unfold right in front of us. And um, this is what happens when you don't prosecute war criminals. John Bolton's a war criminal. Bill Crystal's a war criminal. Dick Cheney's a war criminal. Donald Rumsfeld's a war criminal. George W. Bush is a war criminal. So now some of the war criminals are right back in Washington, D.C., running the show. 
And it's, it's amazing how everything is so transparent to a trained eye now. Because, again, when I look at, you know, the reporting of Iran and Iranian-backed proxies used explosives to blow holes in four ships. Sure they did. In the same way that, you know, Saddam Hussein has weapons of mass destruction. He just bought yellow cake from Niger, which is going to be used in creating the weapons of mass destruction. And, oh, yeah, you're supposed to believe that um, if he does have weapons of mass destruction, he's obviously going to use them immediately, like on South Dakota or something. It's just everything is a stretch. It's a giant leap. It's, it defies a reason. It defies a logic. And you want to know why that's the case? Because it is total bullshit. And they're trying to come up with rationalizations to topple another government that is not acting as a puppet to U.S. corporate power. <laughs> and if you're, if you're skeptical of that, do yourself a favor and read some of the history of the region. We did overthrow the Iranian government in 1953 for cheap oil. That was the whole point. It was us in the U.K. We were getting cheap oil, and then this guy, Mohammad Mossadegh, came into power in Iran, and he said, I'm going to nationalize the oil industry and let the Iranian people reap the benefits, because, duh, why wouldn't I do that? And we said, uh-uh, bitch. So the CIA toppled him, and we put into place the Shah, who was a dictator, and it was because of his rule that, you know, 20 years later, a little over 20 years later, you had the Islamic Revolution. And that led to far-right Islamist reactionaries taking over the country because people were sick and tired of the Shah, the dictator, the Shah. So the idea that now, oh, we just care about the people of Venezuela and the people of Iran. That's all we care about, yes. You're sanctioning the shit out of Venezuela, and as a result of that, people are struggling, not just from the sanctions, not like Maduro is good, but the sanctions are definitely strangling that country. If you cared about the people of Venezuela, you would lift the sanctions because they're hurting regular people. You know, it, you're, you want us to believe that you care about Iran, I mean, and you want to free them from this dictatorship. 73% of the world's dictatorships are supported by the U.S. Obviously, our concern is not about dictatorship or a theocracy over there. We don't care about that stuff. We don't care about it at all. We didn't in the case of Iraq. We didn't with any of our interventions. But here we go again. Rinse, repeat, rinse, repeat. They crafted a plan to send 120,000 troops there. And I love how as they do that, they're like, no, but this, this, <laughs> this isn't a ground invasion or anything. And it's not, it's not like, it wouldn't be like a war, even though we would bomb them and send 120,000 troops. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> Are they buying this? No. No, we're not buying it. We've been lied to for so long, and we've been, we've been at war for so long that they're, they're comical with their approach to it now because it's so nonchalant. So I don't know. They attacked a Saudi oil tanker or something. They maybe not really uh, were saying they would target us or – yeah, sure – with our giant military and the fact that we could overthrow that the fact that, you know, we would bomb them in an instant, they're going to provoke us utter nonsense. And I need you to remember, we, we, we were the people who originally violated the Iran deal and we pulled out of it and they were still abiding by it. Even though the IAEA said they've, followed this 
to a T. They haven't done anything wrong here. Even after we pulled out, they still followed it because Europe was still following it. And then now, finally, after we've provoked them and provoked them and violate the deal and slap them in the face and put sanctions on them again and fucking prevent medicine from getting to them, to the people, they finally go, okay, we're going to enrich to 20%. Now, why are they saying that? Because now they're fucking afraid that we're going to literally try to topple them. So, of course, they're going to enrich to 20%. They uh, want a deterrent to what the U.S. looks like we're clearly going to do. And our response is to pretend like they're being offensive and to say, uh, maybe we topple you. Maybe we send 120,000 troops there. Maybe we attempt to do regime change. And woe is us. We're the victim, of course. Yes, the U.S. is the victim. We're bombing eight countries right this second, but somehow we're the victim. Some people think he's doing this to guarantee that he gets reelected. I don't think that would guarantee a re-election for Trump because we weren't just attacked here and we certainly weren't attacked by Iran. So to do a war under those circumstances, I think is quite different from the feeling we had in the country post 9-11 when Bush's approval rating shot up above 80% and everything was framed as, you know, he's going to protect the country and obviously we're under attack. Look at what happened on 9-11. There is no attack here. And so you're going to go to war against this country, I, uh, against Iran? I don't think that that's going to go over as a lot of people might think it's going to go over. I think people are not as stupid as the government thinks they are. And they'll go, hmm, this doesn't seem to make much sense. And it would not guarantee re-election. In fact, it might hurt. Because the anti-war message is certainly the more popular one, according to the polls, at least right now. So we got a rabid band of bloodthirsty neocon war criminals running our government. And it's like we're living in the twilight zone. We're living in a nightmare, and it keeps repeating itself. Okay, next. We got our first video of the day coming up shortly. Let me let me cue this bad boy for you. Oh, did I not chop it out? I did not chop it out. Wrong. So the clock was just rolled back decades on the issue of reproductive rights. The Alabama State Senate passed a near-total abortion ban in a 25-6 to vote on Tuesday night. The legislation provides no exceptions for rape or incest. The bill is the most restrictive anti-abortion measure passed since Roe v. Wade was decided in 1973. The bill now heads to Governor Kay Ivey, a Republican. If she signs it, She did, by the way. The bill will become law. Up until Tuesday, she has withheld public comment on the legislation. The legislation, House Bill 314, Human Life Protection Act, bans all abortions in the state except when abortion is necessary in order to prevent a serious health risk to the woman, according to the bill's text. 
It criminalizes the procedure reclassifying abortion as a Class A felony, punishable by up to 99 years in prison for doctors. Attempted abortions will be reclassified as a cla- attempted abortions will be reclassified as a Class C penalty. So this law is so extreme. Look at one of the people who came out against it. I think Alabama has gone too far. They passed a law that would give a 99-year prison sentence to people who could commit abortion. There's no exception for rape or incest. Uh, it's an extreme law, and they want to challenge Roe versus Wade. But my humble view is that this is not the case we want to bring to the Supreme Court because I think this one will lose. So admittedly, the nature of his criticism is not that he's against it on principle. He's against it because he thinks it'll hurt the anti-abortion case because it goes too far. It's too extreme, so it's going to get slapped down by the court. However, there's a chance it doesn't because now we have a, a massively conservative Supreme Court. And for the record, that's the whole point of this law. They actually know, some of the lawmakers are on record, and they say, listen, I know that, that this is going to have to work its way through the court system and even go to the Supreme Court, um, but that's the point. The point is, we want to challenge Roe versus Wade, and we want to put something in front of them that can make the anti-abortion case in a very doctrinaire and rigid and extreme way, and that's what they're doing here. Um, My fear is not necessarily that the Supreme Court upholds this law, because this law does go very far. But my fear is they further erode reproductive rights. So there was the, uh, you know, Roe versus Wade, which was a key decision. And then later on, there was a fetal viability case, which changed the standard a little bit in Roe versus Wade away from the trimester standard to a slightly different standard. But still, it's, it's basically a right in this country up until viability at this point that the woman has the right to choose. After viability, states can regulate them, regulate the procedure as they see fit. But viability is 20, 23 weeks or so. And what we're seeing now is not just with this law, with other laws as well. Uh, there's, uh, I forgot where the other one was. Was it Georgia where there was a bill? It's six weeks and later that all abortions are banned. So after six weeks. That is super early. Again, viability is 20 to 23 weeks. The nervous system being developed in the fetus is 20 to 23 weeks. So regulation after that line is perfectly reasonable. Six weeks is massively, massively early. And we're talking about pieces of legislation around the country where they say, oh, we will jail the woman up to 30 years. What? If she gets an abortion after six weeks, again, super early, you're going to jail the woman. I don't get why they don't they don't really grasp with the implications of this because if you are being logically consistent well then you know does a, a fetus that's 7 weeks old you if it's even a fetus yet I'm not even sure if it's that stage yet do they have free speech rights do they have gun rights can a mother collect on social safety net programs for the kid. 
So, hey, you were getting food stamps for, for let's say, two people because you have one other kid and it's you, the mother. Can you go collect for three people? Can you get food stamps for three people? Can you get, you know, more in uh, Medicaid funding? Can you get more in disability? Does the father have to start paying child support at seven weeks? Again, if you're going to say, hey, listen, this is, we're going to treat it like a fully functioning human at this point, well, there are other implications to that. Do they get their social security number at six weeks, at seven weeks? You've got to take this to its logical conclusion. Now, one of the most frustrating parts of all this is we know that these are the people who scream about, you know, wanting to protect life and they're pro-life but then they're also for the death penalty. They're pro-life, but then they're also for every illegal and offensive war. They're pro-life, but then the second the kid is born, they say, let's gut the social safety net completely and cut education funding and give these kids next to no chance to climb that ladder and, and, and make it and have some sort of economic, financial well-being and success. So it, the level of hypocrisy and the contradictions in the belief system are staggering. And again, we're talking super early line here, man. After six weeks is totally nuts. And to treat, treat it as a class A felony for a doctor to perform an abortion and to have no exceptions for rape or incest, that, that defies all logic and common sense. Even Pat Robertson says, I, what? What? <laughs> what are we doing here? What is going on? Really? This is going to be the direction we go? By the way, there are Republican lawmakers all across this country who refuse to even expand Medicaid. You know how Obamacare, part of Obamacare was you could expand Medicaid? The states can individually expand Medicaid? Republican governors across this country and Republican lawmakers at the state level have rejected a Medicaid expansion. So that literally means that, like, actual babies are rejected for health care. If they fall just above that Medicaid line, and that line is too low anyways, you could be a, a, a lower-middle-class working family, and they say, yeah, fuck it, your kid can't get health care. So those people who are fine with kicking babies off of health care are now turning around and saying, we, what about the children? We must care about the embryos and the zygotes and the gametes and the, and the fetuses. All we can hope for is that the Supreme Court cares enough about precedent to say, okay, we're not going to change the fetal viability standard and we're going to keep it as is. But again, with the court being massively conservative now, you don't know there is a chance they just flat out say, no, we disagree. There is no right to abortion in the Constitution. So states can, can um, regulate it however they see fit. If they want to ban it completely, they can ban it completely. If they don't want to ban it completely, they don't have to ban it completely. But do they have the option to ban it completely? Yes. Do they have the option to ban it after six weeks and punish the mother? Yes. Do they have the option to treat it as a Class A felony for the doctor? Yes. Do they have the option to basically give a life in prison sentence for a doctor who performs it? Yes. No, uh, you know, no exceptions for rape or incest? Fine. Who cares? Go right ahead. They're allowed to do that. It's possible that that's what they say. 
and that would obviously be a nightmare, and that would be disastrous. So this is what they're focused on in the year 2019, just for the record. This is what they're focused on in the year 2019. All right, now let's go to Liz. Liz Warren, Liz Warren. Liz Warren. All right, here we go. So Elizabeth Warren decided to throw some haymakers at Fox News a couple days ago. Um, This is interesting for a variety of reasons. Here's what she said. I love town halls. I've done more than 70 since January, and I'm glad to have a television audience uh, be a part of them. Fox News has invited me to do a town hall, but I'm turning them down. Here's why. Fox News is a hate-for-profit racket that gives a megaphone to racists and conspiracists. It's designed to turn us against each other, risking life and death consequences, to provide cover for corruption that's rotting our government and hollowing out our middle class. Hate-for-profit works only if there's profit, so Fox News balances a mix of bigotry, racism, and outright lies with enough legit journalism to make the claim to advertisers that it's a reputable news outlet. It's all about dragging in ad money. Big ad money. But Fox News is struggling as more and more advertisers pull out of their hate-filled space. A Democratic town hall gives Fox News sales team a way to tell potential sponsors it's safe to buy ads on Fox. No harm to their brand or reputation. Spoiler, it's not. Here's one place we can fight back. Uh, I won't ask millions of Democratic primary voters to tune into an outlet that profits from racism and hate in order to see our candidates, especially when Fox when Fox will make even more money adding our valuable audience uh, to their ratings numbers. I'm running a campaign to reach all Americans. I take questions from the press and voters everywhere I go. I've already held town halls in 17 states in Puerto Rico, including West Virginia, Ohio, Georgia, blah, 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 blah. I've done 57 media avails and 131 interviews, taking over 1,100 questions from press since press just since January. Fox News is welcome to come to my events, just like any other outlet, but a Fox News town hall adds money to the hate-for-profit machine, to which I say, hard pass. Now, you know, we spoke about this a little bit when it came to the DNC, and we we spoke about this when it came to Bernie's town hall. Now, I said from the beginning, particularly in the DNC story, do I get the idea why, you know, the DNC wouldn't want to host Democratic debates on Fox News. I actually do get that because, listen, it's a fair argument to to make to say they're not honest actors. The whole point is going to be to try to lie and smear and mislead in with the debate questions. So why pretend like it's a legitimate outlet when it indeed is not a legitimate outlet? And so, in other words, I was fine with the DNC saying we're not going to host debates there. Totally fine. But I also said in the same commentary that you, I understand the other side of the argument, too. And the other side of the argument is it's not about the network. It's about all the people watching. And why not go into their house and destroy them on their terms and on their ground? 
because there's nothing that's stronger than that. There's nothing that's, you know, more powerful than that. And, and the people in the audience are going to watch and... I think, what's the number, 33% of the audience are either independent or Democratic or Democratic-leaning on Fox News. So, yes, it's overwhelmingly right-wing, but 33% of the audience, that's, that's a large number of people. And even the people who don't agree with you will say, well, credit to going into the lion's den. So I understand both sides of that argument. Now, here's why, ultimately, I, I totally disagree with Elizabeth Warren. Even in deciding not to go on Fox News, I, don't, I think her argument sucks. Like, again, it's one thing if she put front and center this idea that, well, they're dishonest and they're going to mislead on purpose and they're going to smear on purpose and they're just not on the up and up. They're not honest actors, so I don't want to lend them legitimacy. I would have agreed with that argument if she made that argument, but she didn't make that argument. Her argument was, they're hateful and they're bigoted and they're racist and that's why you don't engage with them. Liz, I I got news for you. There are plenty of people in the country who are racist. And if Fox News was magically off the air from an advertiser boycott, spoiler alert, they won't be. It's a total waste of time and it's not going to fucking achieve anything, okay? But even assuming, okay, let's say it works. Let's say the ad boycott works. What do you think is going to happen? Will there be no other far right-wing outlet that pops up and no other outlet that caters to bigots? No, that, they, it will literally always be there. And if it wasn't Fox News, guess what? It would be the even worse One America News Network, which prides itself on being to the right of Fox News. So when she puts front and center an argument of they're bigots, they're racist, they're a hate-for-profit network, and I don't want to lend them legitimacy, well, but you actually should engage with racists and bigots and and basically try to destroy that ideology, knowing full well you're not going to convince the majority of them, but you need to get that argument out there into the ether. That needs to be out there. If everybody took this approach of like, they're bigots, so we're not engaging, well, then you would literally have no responses to bigoted arguments, and the bigots would run around with their chest puffed out, acting like, see, they can't destroy us in the battle of ideas, so therefore our bigotry is totally logical and rational. No, actually, your bigotry is stupid, and there should be strong, intelligent voices there to point out and explain exactly why it's stupid. Maybe not to change your mind, because there are plenty of too-far-gone people, but there are plenty of fucking fence-sitters out there who are, are, you know, kind of slowly falling into that ideology. Take a look at a guy like Destiny, a Twitch streamer, who's a, a lefty, and he's done these debates with literal, like, race realists, the people who obsess about race and IQ all day. And when finally, when these people were presented with somebody who knows what the fuck they're talking about, they look ridiculous, and they look incredibly stupid. And there's been countless stories of people who said, listen, I was going down that alt-right rabbit hole, and then I was shaken out of it by a strong showing from somebody who could bust up their arguments. So when Elizabeth Warren argues like, well, it's because they're hate, they have a lot of hate on that network that I'm not going on, that's more of a reason you should go on. Again, if you made the argument that they're disingenuous, and that's why I don't want to lend them legitimacy, is that they're not being honest actors, that's one argument, and I'm sympathetic to that argument, because when you're engaging with a smear merchant, you are lending them a certain amount of credibility where you're saying, okay, I've given you enough respect to show up here, and then you're still going to smear and do all that terrible stuff that you shouldn't do. But in terms of 
just saying, oh, they're bigots and they're, they do hate, so that's why I want to get out of there. No, that's not a good enough reason because we're always going to need to fight back against hateful ideologies. And the way to fight back against those ideologies is to confront them head on. Now, that's not the only reason why I disagree with Elizabeth Warren here. She also has pretty clearly taken an underhanded shot at Bernie Sanders with the way that she went on that tweet storm and the way she worded it. I mean, when she starts saying, well, I think it was the last tweet. Let's see. No, no, no. Um, Here's one place we can fight back. Third to last tweet. Here's one way we can fight back. I won't ask millions of Democratic primary voters to tune into an outlet that profits from racism and hate in order to see our candidates, especially when Fox will make even more money adding our valuable audience to their ratings numbers. That's her taking a shot at Bernie Sanders and basically saying, like, how dare you go, you know, on Fox News and basically prop them up and bring your audience to Fox News. How could you, Bernie? Elizabeth Warren is not engaging in the world that actually exists. She's not accepting the world that exists and trying to change it on the grounds that are already there. She's creating a world in her head about how she wants it to be and then throwing a tantrum like a petulant child and refusing to engage with it in the reality-based world. I wish the world was like this, so now I'm going to act as if that's the case. Whereas Bernie's saying, yeah, I get it. There's a lot of people out there who don't agree with us. There's a lot of people out there who are biggest. There's a lot of people out there who, uh, you know, think I'm terrible. I don't care. I don't care. I'm going to go, and I'm going to try to change their minds. And if I succeed, great. If I don't, whatever, it's fine. At least I did everything I could. Where she's looking at it more from the perspective of a fake virtue signaling moral stand. Like, oh, do you feel good about yourself now? <laughs> you basically told a giant audience to go fuck off. That's the kind of shit. See, this, that's the kind of shit where it actually will hurt with crucial voters in Rust Belt states. And I'm not just talking about the bigoted voters, by the way. <laughs> I'm talking about independent voters, right-leaning voters. They See, she thinks it's like a courageous stand. This only appears to be a courageous stand with the tiniest sliver of, of lefties. Whereas most people are going to look at this and go, pretty weak, pretty weak. Again, I would get it if she made a different argument. She put the argument front and center of they're just not a legit outlet, full stop. And they're not honest actors, full stop. Like, I get that because they're not. And they're going to try to trip you up on purpose. They're not really interested in the battle of ideas. So I get that. I get that argument. But she didn't really make that argument. She said they're racist, they're bigots, they're, they're a hateful outlet. So therefore, I'm not going to prop them up. They're already propped up, Liz. That's the point. The point is they're already doesn't matter whether you go or not. They're already the number one rated news network, okay? That's what they are. So either you go and engage or you just continue to let them spew their propaganda unabated with no response whatsoever. So it's not like you don't come across as like a brave truth teller here. You come across as like a petty authoritarian virtue signaler who's like, yeah, I'm You're bad people, so, like, I'm out of this. There's a lot of bad people in the world, Liz. You want to just let them all go on and continue to be bad, or you want to try to chip away and maybe change some of their minds? We know what Bernie did, and by the way, it worked. Bernie's best performance yet was on Fox News. Best performance yet. So, yeah. Uh, Listen, I, I honestly, I swear to you all, 
I would not be doing this segment if she used the other arguments. Go back and look at my commentary on the DNC. I was kind of sympathetic when I said, hey, listen, they don't want to lend them legitimacy because they don't think they're honest actors. Fine. But that was a different argument that the DNC made. The argument Liz is making is a shitty argument. You're always going to have to engage and try to fight back against bigotry and xenophobia and racism. We're always going to be fighting that battle. And what she said is, no, I'm not going to fight that battle, and I'm going to pretend like that makes me morally superior. It's not even close to morally superior. That's weak. If it wasn't Fox News, it would be one American News Network, and they're even worse. Fox News is not going anywhere. They're not going anywhere, bro. They're not going anywhere. No matter how much people doing this ad boycott think they're making a dent, they're not making a dent. And again, even if they did make a dent, that's when the worst network steps in, One American News Network. There's always going to be CEOs of giant corporations with a gazillion dollars who support that kind of nonsense, hateful, terrible message. So there's always going to be some ad money for outlets like this. You're not going to be able to like shame out of existence people with gross ideologies. Gross ideologies will always exist. So we always have to fight back against them. Not cool um, and really fucking annoying that she threw Bernie under the bus as well with an underhanded attack there. And by the way, you think I'm the only one make, you know, making this point? Only the tiniest sliver of the left supported her on this. People like Zerlina Maxwell and Neera Tandon. Oh, yes, how brave! Elizabeth Warren to run away! Yes! They're the only people. Fucking The View. All the hosts on The View were like, I mean, that is kind of disrespectful to that giant swath of Americans who watch this number one rated network. Well, you think it's going to get you votes? You think this is a positive thing? I mean, come on. It's childish is what it is. Trump did this shit too during the debates. And know what we all did? We mocked him. He said, Megyn Kelly's being unfair to me and she's going to be the moderator of one of the debates, so I'm not going. Megyn Kelly's going to be there and that's, she's unfair to me. What kind of weak fucking... So, in other words, it's weakness and she tries to pretend... He tried to pretend like it's strength. It's deeply weak, and he tries to pretend like, I'm so macho for doing this. It ain't macho. It ain't brave. It's actually kind of pathetic. And the same thing applies to Elizabeth Warren. If she made a better argument, then I would not be doing this segment. But her argument was just really shitty, as if because there are are a lot of bad people who watch Fox and a lot of racists and bigots, therefore you don't go on. No, that's a reason actually to go on, because we will always have to fight back against those ideologies. And guess what? When we do and we make strong arguments, It works, and it chips away. You're never going to convince all of them, and you're never going to change all their minds. But, you know, in a best-case scenario, can you chip away 10% of them? Sure. Sure. Absolutely. So, yeah, kind of weak. And she's Elizabeth Warren, with a bunch of recent decisions, has been falling in my estimation. And that's a shame. Okay, next. Guess what, y'all? It is time to bet on a stork. It is time to bet on a stork. I have a stork for you to bet on, bitch. All right, do I have a video for this? I do. But it's going to be more of an audio thing than video. So, 
So Beto O'Rourke, let me try that again. I called him by the wrong name. There's a young man who's running for president by the name of Bet on My Stork, um, and he cannot stop apologizing. This is actually really sad. He does it every month. This time he was on The View, and um, I'm going to give you the audio clip of that. Check it out. Um, you did a Vanity Fair cover to announce your campaign, and you said you were, quote, born to be in it. You went across the country alone on a road trip after you lost your election, and you said you, quote, sometimes help raise your kids. These are things in my mind that a female candidate wouldn't be able to get away with. Do you think you can get away with more because you're a man? And do you have any regrets about launching on the cover of Vanity Fair? You're right. Um, there are things that I have been privileged to do in my life that, that others cannot. Um, and, and I think the more that I travel and listen to people and learn from them, the clearer that comes becomes to me. Um, when women in this country are paid 80 cents on the dollar that a man makes, African-American women, 61 cents, Latinas, 53 cents. When you have 10 times the wealth in white America than you do in black America, when you have the largest prison population on the face of the planet, and it's disproportionately comprised of people of color. Uh, the systematic foundational discrimination that we have in this country, in, in every aspect of life, is something that I have not experienced in my lifetime. And I've had advantages that others cannot enjoy. So being aware of that, um, and then doing everything in my power to help correct that, working with others, ratifying the Equal Rights Amendment, for example, so that it is beyond the shadow of a doubt that the women will be treated equally in this country. Um, staring in the face of the legacy of, of slavery and segregation and Jim Crow and continued suppression in our economy, in our democracy, in our system of justice, it's the only way that you begin the work of repair and stop visiting those injustices on the generations that follow. So, yes, we have our work cut out for us in this country. I have my work cut out for me to, to be a better pr person and ensure that I'm more mindful uh, to the experiences that others have had, different than the experiences well, that I've had. Your Fair. Were those mistakes? Would you say those were mistakes, being on the cover of Vanity Fair? Yeah, so, so maybe. What? What's yeah, yeah, I, I think it, it reinforces that, that perception of privilege. And that headline that said I was, I was born to, mm -hmm. to be in this, I, in the article, was attempting to say that, that I felt that my calling was in public service. No one is born to be president of the United States of America, uh, least of all me. Um, so, so um, yeah. What about I, the black I'm dead thing? Yeah, so, so listen. Have for that one. Absolutely, and I deserved it. Uh, <laughs> and, yeah, what did you Like, the problem with it was that 
it's goofy, and it's obvious that the media likes you, and they're trying to shove you down everybody's throats. Do you like him? Look, he's a young, attractive man. He's a young, attractive man, and he speaks like a politician, and he won't rock the boat too much. He's a young, attractive man. He was born to be in it. Yeah, born to be in it. That's the problem with it was that it was goofy. So they asked, you know, they asked him about it. And if he was keeping it real, he could have said, like, yeah, I mean, I don't regret being on the cover, but, yeah, it was a little goofy. Born to be in it. I mean, that, that is a little silly. But, no, he gave a long fucking, like, two-and-a-half-minute diatribe of, like, oh, I'm privileged. I'm a white male, and I apologize for being a white male. Yeah. I'm so privileged. How many times did he say the word privilege in a two-minute clip? <laughs> privilege, you know, I'm just, I'm privileged. And, uh, you know, there's racism and sexism in the world, and it's bad. It's really bad. Oh, thank you, Beto. You're so brave. Oh, you're so brave. By the way, this is all he's got. I watched the whole interview, and there's another part where he goes off about Trump. The whole thing. He doesn't bring anything up about his destruction of our health care system, throwing three million people off of their insurance. doesn't bring anything up about war. doesn't bring anything up about the tax cut. All he's got is he's a bigot. He's a bad, bad man. He's a bigot. Yep, we know. We got that, like, fucking, from the second he brought up the Obama uh, birth certificate nonsense. The second he bought into birtherism, we were like, yeah, okay, that's a little bigoted. From back in the day when he did the fucking Central Park Five, he was calling for, like, the death penalty for them. It turns out they were totally innocent. But he jumped to conclusions. Why? I don't know. They're young minorities. Fuck them. So that's, like... Yeah, we got it. We got it. He's a fucking bigot. He said, uh, you know, yeah, the Mexicans, they're criminals, they're rapists. I assume some are good people. I want a total and complete shutdown of Muslims coming into this country until we can figure out what the hell is going on. Yeah, we got it, Beto. It's fucking easy. We got it. This is, see, this is why I hate corporate Democrats. They pick, they're like, well, oh, what's this here? Is this some low-hanging fruit I see? Mmm, yummy in my tummy. So in other words, it, you know what's actually bold and brave? What Ilhan Omar did, what Tulsi Gabbard did, the um, Rokan as well. Hey, we shouldn't topple the Venezuelan government. Why is that bold and brave? Because the entire mainstream media is t- screaming about how we should do it, and the entire deep state is trying to force us to do it. And it makes you look like, oh, are you coming out in favor of a dictator? Wow, that's terrible. They're not actually doing that. They're saying on principle and saying we shouldn't offensively invade countries and shouldn't be meddling in other countries. So when you come out against the entire political establishment and you say we shouldn't be, uh, go to Venezuela and be involved in Venezuela, that's actual bravery. You know what's fucking easy to say? Trump's a bigot. Congratulations. You know what's easy to say? I'm privileged. I'm self-privileged. Please put me in the White House where I can be the most powerful person on the planet. But I'm self-privileged. I think racism is bad. I think sexism is bad. He was asked about the Vanity Fair cover, and he somehow, in his answer, brought up slavery. Bro, what? (laughs) Hey, do you think the Vanity Fair cover was a mistake? Slavery and segregation is very bad. I, for one, am not in favor of it. Did I win the black vote? Did you guys like me now? I think sexism is bad. Women, women, will you vote for me? I also have dreamy eyes. Uh, 
he was even asked, there's this thing he said about his wife on the campaign trail. And he was asked about that, too. He said, like, oh, I'm, like, raising my kids part-time. He said something along those lines. It was kind of a joke. It's like, yeah, he's campaigning all the time. And people wrote, like, breathless articles. There were some, you know, social justice warrior types who were like, oh, you're perpetuating the patriarchy by saying your wife needs to handle all that work. And he, again, he was like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I'm a bad man. I'm a privileged bad man. I'm so privileged bad. Poop face. Poop. We're looking for a president, dog, not a virtue signaler in chief. <laughs> Can you please, please, please go away? You know what it is? Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Beto O'Rourke is the Jeb Bush of the 2020 uh, election. That's what he is. He was the front runner for a brief, like, two and a half minutes when the media couldn't stop sucking him off. And then when uh, he actually started talking publicly and all he knew how to do was apologize for his existence, he... <laughs> Just tanked in the polls. Please clap. Will you please clap? I'm a, I'm a tough guy. I, eat, I, eat, I wake up and I eat nails. And then I eat breakfast. Oh, fuck. <laughs> Everybody's like, Jeb, what are you saying, man? That doesn't even make sense, dude. <laughs> Listen, this, it's weakness. This is weakness. I, I get it. He's trying to pander to get votes. But this is weakness. And it's not 1982 anymore, bro. You can't get away with, like saying shit like this. The problem wasn't even the shit he said that they're trying to act like is outrageous, because it's not. The problem is you, you bleed weakness. You drip weakness from every pore of your body. And nobody likes weakness. doesn't matter who it is. Nobody likes that shit. You think, you think, how would this guy hold up in a debate against Donald Trump? Are you kidding me? He'd be given a long diatribe about, you know, Mr. President, I, uh, I, I'm not sure that your words accurately reflect the, the nature of this great nation, and I'm not sure that, you know, you really uh, are a good representative, because we have good people in this country. And we, sir, stand united against all forms of bigotry and xenophobia and racism. And I, for one, do not appreciate your foul language. And America, I think we're better than this. And it, Trump will just open up the bowels of head on his face. <laughs> oh, what are you, flailly arms better over there. Listen, man, <laughs> we're making this country great again. We're doing tremendously well. The economy is beautiful. Big, beautiful economy, I have to tell you. Folks, you love to see it. You love to see this big, beautiful economy. Did you say something? I couldn't hear you through your arms waving nonstop. Meadows, <laughs> the fucking, you know, thing you see outside of um, car dealerships in Iowa, the flaily arm. <laughs> Trump would destroy this guy, and um, if you can't see that, oh, god damn. If somebody like Beto gets a nomination, uh, uh, I might go full nihilist on everybody. I might go full nihilist. Please let Bernie win. Oh, my God, he has to. If Beto runs, I think Trump is the favorite. If Beto gets to the general, I think Trump is the favorite. All right, let's go to Joseph Biden, also known as Hansy Uncle Joseph. 
So Joe Biden, also known as Hansy Uncle Joseph, he gave a what I would call a fake woke explanation for opposing Medicare for all. So let's take a look at this, and I'm going to break it down for you. What do you say to calls for some sort of universal health care or something like Medicare for all from some of the other people running? Well, the I, look, I, I, I think they're, they're well intended. I think they mean it. It's, it's not, I'm not, but here's the deal. Um, right now, you have, 60, you have this overwhelming number of employers who are paying in a health care plan. Why let them off the hook? All of a sudden, they don't have to pay anything? What happens then to this whole thing about profit and the rest? I mean, it should be part of the compensation if you have it. Employers offering health care to their employees is one of the main ways that they exert undue influence over your life. That's how they abuse their authority over you. You know, it happens often in the U.S., and people in other developed countries would be horrified by this. But in the U.S., people oftentimes take jobs that they don't want simply because they need the health care. Another thing is people struggle leaving one employer and going to another because many people know, hey, in this transition period, I won't have health care and it, it could be unmanageable for me or unaffordable or even deadly in that brief time between switching jobs. So I'm kind of forced to keep the job I'm in. That's like a weird modern version of indentured servitude. It's like, oh, oh, you want to leave? Sure, go right ahead. But, you know, you won't have health care and you need that medicine and without your health insurance, that medicine is going to be unaffordable, so maybe you go without your medicine for three weeks while you get your new job, or you could just stay here, and then you definitely won't be in the hospital or die. Having health care tied to your employers is like the worst possible system, the worst conceivable system. It's as bad as it gets. And Joe Biden tried to co-opt leftist rhetoric to make the case for that. So in other words, he was like, why are you letting the employers off the hook, bro? What are you like, for big business or something? Oh, that's the argument you're going to use, big guy? You're, you're, you want to get tough on uh, big business? You want to get tough on the employers? Here's an idea. How would you like to put 80% of the health insurance companies out of business? Is that tough enough for you on big business? Oh, that's right. You're against that. And you're against that because that's who you're actually representing with this comment. You're representing all the for-profit health insurance companies. That's who you're really fighting for, the for-profit health insurance companies. So he's trying to mask it by using pseudo-woke rhetoric, but it, you know, it's transparent to people who know this shit. The question is, will it work on the people who don't know the details of this stuff? And they'll think like, yeah, crack down on the employers. That sounds like kind of populist. No, that's not populist at all. You know what's really populist? Putting 80% of the health insurance companies out of business and only having private health insurance companies um, for supplemental insurance. So supplemental care. And that's what Medicare for All would do. It would offer su supplemental private insurance. The default would be everybody's covered and everybody's covered at a, at a cheaper price. And we get better health outcomes. It's just, it's just so much better. It's just better across the board. You cannot compare it to any other system because it just blows it out of the water. We already tried the middle-of-the-road mealy-mouth bullshit 
Okay, we already tried it. We already tried it. That's what Obamacare was. The Heritage Foundation came up with the plan. Newt Gingrich and Chuck Grassley used to support it. Those flaming lefties. Um, and the idea was let the for-profit health insurance companies continue to run the show, and we'll just mandate people buy it from them, and we'll have some mild regulations to prevent their worst abuses. It's better reform than nothing, but guess what? It's been implemented for a while, and you know what the, the results are? It always hovers around 50% approval. Sometimes it's below 50%, sometimes it's just above 50%, but that's where it's going to top out at. Why? Because you still have people getting fucking robbed blind. You still have medical bankruptcies. You still have tens of millions of people who are uninsured. It's, it's a disaster, and his answer is more of the same. His answer is maybe slightly expand Obamacare. And by the way, if you start with that as your position or public option as your position, you're going to get nothing. You're going to get nothing. It's only the people who are asking for the, for the best, furthest left idea who are going to get anything at all accomplished, because that's how negotiation works in our system. So it is, God, he's so shitty, man. He's so shitty. He's a status quo defender, and he's trying to come up with clever new arguments to defend the status quo, like pretending Medicare for all is not hard enough on employers. Oh, please. He wants to keep this system of, like, indentured servitude where you struggle switching jobs because you don't want to lose your health insurance. There is nothing that is more progressive about that position. Joe Biden. Here we go. So Joe Biden offered some more delusional opinions on modern American politics for us. Take a look. That is the most naive garbage I've ever heard in my life. He said a lot of Republicans are going to have an epiphany when Trump's out of office. And that epiphany will be, oh, gosh, golly, we got to work with these Democrats because they want what's best for the country. And President Joe Biden has our best interests at heart. Let's work with him. He's bringing a super soaker to a gunfight. Bro, they're not that into you, dog. They're never going to be. Obama said the same shit. He said in 2012, if once I get elected to a second term, I think the fever will break and the Republicans will want to work with me. They broke the filibuster record against you. 
They pretended you were a Kenyan Marxist Muslim. The idea that they would for a second work with you. No, you have to you have to crack their spine over your knee and then chug their spinal fluid. That's what you have to do to the Republicans in Washington, D.C. Now listen, there is a difference, and it's important to make this distinction. There is a difference between your average Joe Republicans, Republican voters, people in the country, and their representatives and their senators in Washington, D.C. The ones in Washington, D.C., they're too far gone. I mean, there's a handful of them, like, don't get me wrong, on foreign policy issues or um, criminal justice reform, can you work with Justin Amash or Rand Paul? Sure. Sure. Can even work with Mike Lee on some foreign policy stuff? Sure. So are there little points of agreement with the libertarian-leaning Republicans? Yes. Are there even some points of agreement on, say, trade for, with the more paleoconservative-leaning Republicans? Sure, sure. There's only a handful of issues here and there where you could work with some of them, but like over 90% of them are just too far gone on every issue. They're completely and utterly corrupt and bought by Wall Street and the military-industrial complex and Big Pharma and the rest. Um, And they're also socially as backwards as it gets. As backwards as it gets. If these guys had their druthers, is that a word? Druthers? Is that a saying? I think I may have just made that up. It sounds like it's real, though. But if they, if they had their way, we wouldn't even have fucking gay marriage in this country. If they could, they would roll it back. But they can't because the Supreme Court ruled that it's constitutional right. But if they had their way, we wouldn't even have that. You think you're going to level with people who want health insurance companies to kick people off for pre-existing conditions? And by the way, they do want that. They pretend like they're, but us, no, totally, we're for the protections now. No, you're not. We still have the videos of all these guys on Fox News arguing that it would be disastrous if we took away health insurance companies' right to deny you care for pre-existing conditions. If these guys had their way, everything in the country would be backwards. Joe, they're going to try to try to say whatever personal thing irks you the most, they're going to go full bore on that. We know you're handsy Uncle Joseph and you get weird, touchy-feely with everybody around you, but they're going to try to argue you're a rapist. They're going to they're go... Next level low on you, son. They're going to work with you. They're going to laugh at you. They're going to laugh at you. They're going to smear you. They're going to stab you in the back. And by the way, you make it totally easy, too. Because your record is a disaster. You were for every terrible decision. You supported NAFTA. You supported Wall Street deregulation. You supported the Patriot Act. You supported the Iraq War. They're going to fucking obliterate you, dog. Now, granted, they were all for all those things, too, but they don't care. They'll attack you for them and, and not even acknowledge the fact that they're massive hypocrites. They won't work with you on anything, dude. The only time they'll ever work with you, and even then they'll fucking destroy you and, and run you over, bulldoze you in the media as they support you on it, is like if you want to do more Wall Street deregulation. You want to give more money to the military-industrial complex. You want to give more money to, like, ExxonMobil. They'll support you, but then they'll still just fucking verbally put the smackdown on you as they support the legislation on that. So what are you talking about? What are you talking about? What are you saying, bro? You really think Republicans in Washington, D.C. are going to work with you? Watch, you're an old white dude? Look at Bill Clinton. Bill Clinton was a, well, he wasn't that old. He's like a middle-aged white dude. They hated his punk ass. They hated him. He agreed with them on fucking 50% of shit, and they hated him, dude. They're going to hate you, too. Guess what? I agree with them, though. I hate you, too. I hate them also. (laughs) 
Republican voters, yes, it's possible to win over some Republican voters because they're not as crazy. And if a working class average Joe who votes Republican and then he sees a Democratic president give him health care, give him paid vacation time or something, they're going to go, oh, shit, I kind of like this. So the voters, yes, you could win over the voters. But over 90% of those Republicans in Washington, D.C. are going to take a hatchet, hit you in the back with it, and then twist. Okay, so this, oh, they're going to have an epiphany and the fever is going to break. This is the same bullshit Obama said, and then they decided they were going to fucking smear him 87 ways to Sunday. So this is childish, man. This is childish what he's talking about. I want somebody who's going to fight the other side, because on most of the issues, the Republicans in D.C. need to be fought. It's that simple. And on the few issues where you work with them, you only work with the ones who you know they're it's possible to work with them, like Rand Paul on foreign policy. But that's it, dude. Dude, go away. This man is stuck in a previous generation, and he sounds like a naive child. Change the graphic, and I shouldn't have. I got one more from Hansy Uncle Joseph. We'll get to that in just a second. And then after that, I got Tulsi Gabbard. Give me a break. Give me a break. Break me off a piece of that. Dick sack bar. (laughs) All right. So I have more of the greatest hits from Hansy Uncle Joseph here. He was at a private dinner fundraising in 2008 when he ran for president and got negative 18% of the vote. Um, Look at what he says here. I think Alabama has gone too far. They've passed the law. Whoops. That would be the wrong video clip. Here it is. about supporting 
a border fence. He's bragging about appointing a national drug czar and writing the crime bill. You know how many nonviolent black and brown people were locked up as a result of that? And poor whites. People's lives ruined over nothing. Over nothing. And he's bragging about deporting a 700-mile border fence. Here's why I love this story. It shows you the difference between a neoliberal corporate Democrat and a Republican. What's the Republican idea? I want a border wall, and I want it to go through the whole border. I don't know how long the border is in total, but... And then you have Biden, who probably wants a slightly shorter border fence. You don't need a fence in the areas where the terrain is difficult to cross anyway, so you don't need it. But yeah, everywhere else, I don't want a wall that's too extreme, that's too right-wing. I'll take a fence. If that is not just the perfect, like that is the Overton window in the U.S. in a nutshell. (laughs) It's like on war, let me give you the equivalent on war. I think we should ground invade all these countries offensively and permanently occupy them and militarily overthrow their governments and do regime change. That's the right-wing position. What's the left-wing position? Well, I think we should just use our air power and our drone power, and we should bomb people from the sky. No boots on the ground. Maybe some, you know, on the margins, some uh, boots on the ground for, you know, just intelligence purposes, maybe a couple thousand. I think we should put 120,000 troops on the ground and invade. Well, I think we could have maybe 2,000 troops on the ground just for intelligence reasons, but other than that, just air power and drone power. But, of course, we should be bombing like eight countries. That's the Overton window on war. (laughs) The Overton window on the border is wall versus fence. Oh, it hurts. It hurts inside. (laughs) Oh, there's no... People want a real lefty, man. We've had this... We've had a battle in this country between a right-wing ideology and a far-right-wing ideology. That's what we've had. Right-wing versus far-right. And you wonder why everybody's, um, everybody feels like the system is rotten and broken and it's not representing them. Because it's rotten and it's broken and it's not representing them. Status quo is totally broken. It's only helping the top 1% and corporations, billionaires. Defense contractors. (laughs) So you can't, oh, my God, if Biden gets the nomination, good googly moogly. We are so fucked. I actually think since he's a good debater, he would have a decent chance of winning, even though his record is disastrous. But you get what, 15% change from Trump at a time when we need a total reversal of the system. Just scrap the whole fucking thing and start from scratch. And make us into what we should have been all along, which is a non-interventionist, peaceful social democracy. Joe Biden will 100% not go down that path. All right, let's take a quick break. When we come back... We'll go to Tulsi Gabbard. She went on Joe Rogan's podcast. We'll talk about her and what she said. Um, And then we also have 
a bill that got passed in Florida that is an insane crackdown on free speech, and of course it involves Israel. And uh, wait until you hear the awesome stuff that AMLO, the president of Mexico, is doing. You are not going to want to miss a minute of it. Stay right there, bitches. We'll be right back. Thank you. 
beach on back. Let's uh, let's go to Tulsi Gabbard and talk a little bit about her Joe Rogan appearance. I can't p- play you the clip because, unfortunately, um, Rogan's parent company or whatever, a little bit of a copyright troll. So, but I'll I'll read you a little piece on it here. So Tulsi Gabbard went on Joe Rogan's podcast and uh, she made news with some of her comments. But here's one of the best things she said. This is a report from Newsweek talking about it. Representative Tulsi Gabbard, a Democratic presidential candidate, said the U.S. should drop criminal charges against Julian Assange and Edward Snowden. The military veteran said during a lengthy interview on the Joe Rogan Experience podcast this week that WikiLeaks founder Assange and national security whistleblower Snowden should not be prosecuted for disclosing information. Quote, What would you do about Julian Assange? What would you do about Edward Snowden, Rogan asked. Gabbard said, if elected, she would drop the Assange charges and pardon Snowden. We have got to address why Snowden did things the way he did them, she said. You hear the same thing from Chelsea Manning, how there is not an actual channel for for whistleblowers like them to bring forward information that exposes egregious abuses of our constitutional rights and liberties, period. There was not a channel for that to happen in a real way. And that's why they ended up taking the path they did and suffering the consequences. In June 2013, Snowden handed over to journalists a trove of National Security Agency documents detailing a sprawling surveillance apparatus used by global intelligence agencies. Okay, so um, this is one of those moments where People who are political junkies and who are outside of the rotten system in Washington, D.C., we look at this and we go, well, of course she's right. This is obvious, and props to her for stating the obvious. But you have to understand how powerful context is here, because she's coming from the context of being in Washington, D.C., surrounded by people who view this kind of stuff as taboo. Like, no, 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 you cannot speak out in favor of Chelsea Manning or Julian Assange or Edward Snowden because, you know, the NSA and the CIA and the deep state, um, you know, have been crossed by these characters. The military has been crossed by Chelsea Manning. You can't side with them. That's like a slap in the face to the intelligence agencies and to the military. Tulsi doesn't give a fuck. She doesn't care about that. She just said, fuck it, I'll, I'll tell the truth and I'll state the obvious. The obvious is Chelsea Manning exposed war crimes. She exposed there were people in the military who killed innocent civilians in Iraq, I believe it was, and then were laughing about it as they were killing them. And they did a double tap and killed the first responders as well. Again, laughing about it. When we saw that, we went, oh my goodness. That is not what's supposed to be happening. We're told that we're fighting for freedom and democracy and we care about human rights and then we're killing innocent people and laughing about it. Chelsea Manning exposed that because she has a conscience. Um, Julian Assange of WikiLeaks released that because he has a conscience. Now, you could say, hey, in the 2016 election, he appeared to be more on the side of Trump. I think that's true. He even said the WikiLeaks, um, there were WikiLeaks DMs that were released where they said, we think it's better for Republicans to win. And they leaked on the DNC. 
Now, in my humble opinion, I'm totally fine with the leaks on the DNC because we learned stuff that we should have learned, that they were basically rigging the primary against Bernie Sanders, and we learned what Hillary Clinton was saying behind closed doors about how you need to have public positions and private positions. We were learning how the DNC was basically a fundraising arm uh, of the Hillary Clinton campaign. So all that should have been released. Now, if WikiLeaks had RNC material, would they have leaked it? I don't know, because they said, we think it's better for Trump to win. So... Maybe they wouldn't have released it, and that I would have a problem with. If they had the ability to get RNC leaks and they didn't get RNC leaks and they didn't leak on that, I would have a problem with that. Now, having said that, that doesn't matter because what, they, what he did was not illegal. What he did was not wrong. What he did was right. So Julian Assange is being persecuted because he pissed off a lot of very powerful people. Chelsea Manning, same thing. She just recently got out of jail. Again, they were trying to make her talk on Julian Assange or something, and then they locked her up. In the case of Edward Snowden, listen, the dude clearly only gave out information that we should have known. And what he was saying is, hello, everybody, your government is trampling on your constitutional rights. You have a protection under our Constitution from unreasonable search and seizure. The government is definitely violating that. They are definitely doing an unreasonable search and an unreasonable seizure of your information, of your data. So for him to point that out, that's a hero. Now understand, these guys tried to go through proper channels. Like they tried to, you know, send it to the big outlets and the big outlets rebuffed them. And, and so they ended up, in the case of Chelsea Manning, she went to Julian Assange of WikiLeaks. In the case of Edward Snowden, he went to uh, Glenn Greenwald and Laura Poitras? I could be getting that last one wrong. And I think at the time they were with The Guardian. Um, and they, he tried every conceivable way to do it where it would be more palatable, but he, they ended up having to go to the outlets that they went to. And then, you know, the U.S. government pretended like, oh, they didn't do this in a reasonable and responsible way. And now, of course, Edward Snowden is still hiding overseas to this day, not allowed to return to his own country because he's a goddamn hero and the government would persecute him. And what's their argument? They would say, it's illegal that you release that information. Yeah, but it's illegal that the government's taken all of our information in the first place. So who's really at fault here? You guys are for illegally taking our information, unconstitutionally taking our information. And Edward Snowden is not allowed to use in, in court the defense of this, is in, this is for, was for the public good. He's not allowed to use that defense in court because there's an old draconian law that won't allow him to use that um, argument. So... This is big. It's big for a presidential candidate to come out and say, these people are heroes. Because, listen, time always exposes that. In the case of Daniel Ellsberg with the Pentagon Papers, he showed the war crimes that we were doing in Vietnam. Um, and then at the time, he was called a traitor. Uh, you're against the U.S. and all that nonsense. And over time, eventually people went, yeah, it was kind of right to show that we were, like, napalming and using Agent Orange on innocent villagers, wasn't he? on like landless peasants killing hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people. Good thing he, he exposed that. Mike Ravel read it into the congressional record, hero in his own right as well. But now we have people very soon after the story leaked standing up and, and saying the right thing. And remember, Tulsi Gabbard brings an extra level of credibility on this stuff because she's a veteran. 
And like it or not, uh, you know, they have, they're viewed as inherently having more credibility on these issues because it's related to the military. So, but they still smear her. They still try to smear her, and they're not going to stop. They're going to, oh, Assad apologist, yada, yada. And the same, yeah, sure, in the same way that people who were saying we shouldn't go into Iraq were Saddam Hussein apologists. They weren't. They just didn't want us to do an illegal offensive war like we're still doing today and like we, they want to do more of. Props to Tulsi Gabbard for saying this. By the way, in the same interview, you should check it out with Joe Rogan. Um, she also said the Iraq war was mostly done for oil. True, but yet again, for all the establishment hacks out there, they'll clutch their pearls when they hear that, oh, a major political candidate running for president saying that? Well, goodness gracious, they have these lines that they don't want you to cross. Like, here, I'll give you another example. You're not allowed to say, oh, that illegal and offensive war that we did, that illegal and offensive invasion, that was, um, that was a war crime. And people who did it should be prosecuted. You're not allowed to say that. You're not allowed to, you're not allowed to assign agency to the people who make the decisions in the U.S. If they do something bad, you have to describe it as a blunder, a oopsie, like oops. They stumbled into war. You have to use words like that, passive description. Um, and this is one of those things where you're, not, you're allowed to say it was a mistake. That's what Obama would say. It was a mistake that we went to Iraq. You're not allowed to say it was for oil if you're, uh, if you're a viable, legitimate candidate. Tulsi Gabbard said, I don't give a fuck. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell it like it is. She said it, it was for oil. So props to her. Um, she's really a revolutionary candidate in many respects. And uh, I, of course, expect her to continue to be relentlessly smeared as a result of it. change the the graphic changes oh my my belly is grumbling and I ate breakfast today very strange so a bill just got passed unanimously in Florida there wasn't a single vote in the house or the senate um that was against this let's take a look at what they're up to HB 741 sponsored by Representative Randy Fine, amends the Florida Educational Equality Act to add religion to the list of categories for which discrimination is prohibited and adopts a 2017 definition of anti-Semitism encoded by the Miami-Dade County city of Bal Harbor and endorsed by the U.S. State Department. Fine filed HB 741 in February as a response to the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement which he says is orchestrating anti-Israel campaigns using anti-Semitic tactics. Under the bill, the BDS movement is defined as a terrorist group, no different than the KKK or ISIS, which has prompted some to question if criticism of the Jewish state could be mischaracterized as being anti-Semitic criticism of the Jewish people. Huh? 
What? Okay, okay, okay. All right, hold on here. Now, the bill itself does not have that language in it, so I don't know where the author of this piece got that from. Is it possible that the author of the piece spoke to the people who wrote the bill, and they were like, well, yeah, we mean we want to equate BDS with the terrorist groups, and so that's our whole goal is by crafting this bill, we're trying to delegitimize the BDS movement. It's possible that the author of this piece had that conversation with the, you know, the people who wrote the legislation, but to be clear, that is not actually in the legislation itself, thank goodness. Now, having said that, this is one of over a dozen states, I think it's over 20 states around the country, that has in one way or another tried to criminalize BDS and, and actually done illegal, unconstitutional legislation that punishes political speech. So we discussed it how in Houston, if you wanted hurricane relief, you had to sign something that said you will not support a boycott of Israel. What? If you, get, if you wanted hurricane relief money, you had to pledge that. That's ludicrous. Um, if you want government contracts in certain states, you have to pledge that you will never boycott Israel. Uh, Cuomo, the governor of New York, he called for a boycott, I believe it was of Indiana, over anti-gay legislation that they passed a while ago. He called for a boycott of Indiana. Then he turned around and supported legislation that cracked down on a boycott of Israel. So you literally wanted to boycott the United States of America, your own country, a state within your own country, but you want to criminalize a boycott of Israel. You, you want to crack down on the rights of Americans for speaking out against a foreign country. But you also want your fellow Americans to protest America. I can't... This is insanity. It's insanity. And by the way, it shows you how powerful the Israel lobby is. Now, you're not allowed to say this because then you, they accuse you of anti-Semitism, just like they did with Ilhan Omar when she talked about APAC and how it's the pro-Israel lobby, it's a right-wing group, and it basically buys politicians to do the bidding of the Israeli government. You're not allowed to say that, but I say it because it's true. Um, now, look at what's popping up around the country. Bills like this. Even just the conflation of being against the Israeli government with anti-Semitism, that's deeply disturbing. That is literally like they tried with the Iraq war when you criticized the U.S. and they tried to say you're anti-America. What does that mean? Like what, I'm rooting for America to do bad? No, I'm criticizing it because I want America to do better. I want us to not do illegal offensive wars. That's why I'm criticizing. By the same token, when I say Israel shouldn't be doing um, you know, it, more illegal settlements and, in the West Bank and bombing Gaza relentlessly with 80% civilian death rates. Yeah, I'm saying I want them to stop the negative shit they're doing so they can be better. But no, they conflate that as anti-Semitic. So you hate all Jews because you criticize the Israeli government for doing war crimes. So this is um, terrible. And by the way, Ron DeSantis, the Republican governor, wants to go to Israel to do a signing ceremony on this. What a gross relationship we have. We let them get away with whatever the fuck they want to get away with, whatever bombing of civilians or offensive wars or whatever, and um, we pat them on the back and we defend them and we even try to protect them from criticism. You want to talk about the biggest snowflakes in the world who need a safe space? 
Here you go. Okay, next. So Emerson Polling released some new data on the Democratic primary that I want to share with you. This is important for a variety of reasons. So they have Joe Biden at 33%, Bernie Sanders at 25%, Kamala Harris at 10%, Warren at 10%, Booty Judge at 8%, Bet on My Stork at 3%, Julian Castro somehow at 2%, and you know I'll, I'll leave it there. But you can see, you can you know look down the rest of that list yourself. Um, now here's the crucial. Part. Okay. You look at that and go, okay, Biden appears to have a comfortable lead. But, 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 Sanders currently leads Biden among 18 to 29 year old voters by an impressive 41% to 11%. However, Sanders' support weakens with age 30 to 49. They only break for Sanders 29% to 26%. As compared to 50 to 64-year-olds who break for Biden, 42% to 19%. And among those over 65, Biden has a strong lead, beating Sanders 52% to 7%. So this poll is landlines and an online panel. So it's a little better than the other polls, which had just used landlines, and they're undersampling young, younger voters, because those are always going to skew in a way older direction if you're using landlines. And so you're going to get a result that's skewed towards the more establishment candidates, because older voters support, generally support more establishment candidates. So Bernie's support comes virtually all from thir- uh, from 49-year-olds and under, and more crucially, 18 to 29-year-olds. So a poll that would more accurately reflect the race is if you sample more young voters, because in any election where Bernie Sanders would win, there would be massive turnout among younger voters. And I'm convinced that there will be massive turnout among younger voters. Now, this poll is better than the others. CNN had Biden up by like 30 points hilarious and silly and ridiculous. They shouldn't have even released the poll because it was totally skewed in favor of Biden because it way oversampled older voters. Here you have a little bit of a better poll here because they didn't just do landlines. They did landlines and an online panel, um, and it's done based on 2016 turnout. Now, I still think it's a little skewed in, in the direction of Biden because, again, any election Bernie would win, it would be higher. it's going to be higher than 2016 turnout, unquestionably going to be higher than 2016 turnout. Um, so then it, that would lead you to believe it, it'll be a little bit more pro-Bernie because these t- the turnout numbers were too low in 2016. But, okay, even accepting that, they're saying with the 2016 turnout numbers, having a landline and an online panel, it's basically, in, what, an eight-point lead for Biden? That is more understandable. That's more like what I would kind of expect what I would think if I had to guess that Biden got his post-announcement bump um, and Bernie kind of petered out just a tad, like by a point or two, and 
this more accurately reflects the race. You can say, hey, maybe cut that in half. Maybe it's like a four-point lead for Biden, because, again, this is on 2016 turnout numbers. But this wasn't one of those polls where they just completely oversample older voters and it's totally skewed. So the most important takeaway here, though, is 18 to 29-year-olds and even 30 to 49-year-olds, you got to get out there and vote for Bernie, and you got to get out there and be his biggest support because he's going to get walloped with the older voters. And here's what's for sure. Every election, the older voters turn out. That's what Every election, that's what happens. That's what we see is massive turnout among older voters because they view voting as a civic duty and they just go and do it. doesn't matter. They're, they're going to do it. Whereas younger voters usually feel like they need more of a reason to show up to the polls and it's not like a guarantee that they vote. If they don't like anybody, they just won't vote. Now, thankfully, the polls show that Bernie's loved among young voters, so he's likely to turn them out, but he has to or else there's no way he wins the race. So we, ha- we have to see giant turnout among young voters in the primary and in the general. Again, I'm not concerned about the general because Bernie's strongest support is in those Rust Belt states that he needs to win. Um, so if Bernie gets through the primary, I think he's going to landslide Trump in a comical fashion. Um, but the primary is the hard part. And I think there's still reason to believe he might struggle in California, which hurts. He might struggle in New York, which hurts. And he might struggle in the South still, which hurts. Um, so if he could do a little bit better in New York, California, and the South, and then just hold the rest of the Midwest, which should be relatively easy for him, then he can win. But it's all contingent upon young voters turning out massively, and this poll, more than any other, shows it. And again, this is a more accurate poll than the other ones you've seen recently, simply for the fact that they also included an online panel, and it wasn't just landline. So Biden's the favorite, but it's not by that much. And I also say, give it a little bit of time, because I think Biden is going to kind of tank. Because it happened the other two times he ran, the more he spoke, the more he went down in the polls. So, but don't sleep, man. Don't sleep on any of this stuff. You still have to fight for Bernie, and you still have to do everything you can to try to get him elected, because it's still going to be a battle, that's for sure. buddies in Mexico are doing. So recently, uh, AMLO got elected in Mexico. He's their president. And uh, we were pretty happy about this. If you followed the campaign even a little bit, you would have found out that he's closest on the spectrum to Bernie Sanders. Um, And so Mexico's Bernie Sanders was elected, which brought a smile to my face. I remember... Um, reading about his policy platform, and I went, oh, shit, (laughs) we got one. We got a good win around the world. This is wonderful. So um, let's see if he's the real deal, though, because when you campaign, you know, people can say anything when they campaign. What are they going to do when they get in office? What are they going to do? Well, I'm pleased to announce that AMLO didn't just talk the talk. He's walking the walk. Mexico wants to decriminalize all drugs and negotiate with the U.S., to do the same. 
So he wants to transfer the funding that's now used for the drug war. He wants to transfer that to pay for treatment programs instead. Mexico Supreme Court also last year issued a ruling that says punishing people for using marijuana violates the Constitution. So they're working now on, you know, the next step on that front to try to make it so that the law reflects that. And then also Mexican lawmakers are pushing forward legislation to regulate the use of recreational marijuana. But AMLO, again, wants to decriminalize not just marijuana, all drugs, and negotiate with the U.S. to do the same. Not only is that the right policy, AMLO is brave, man. He has steel balls because this doesn't look like the kind of policy that the drug cartels are going to take kindly to. I think the drug cartels are going to go, oh, really? That's what you want to do? You want to decriminalize all drugs? Really? That's what you want to do? You want to move towards recreational legalization? That's going to that's gonna tank their business. Listen, that's always the biggest fear of the cartels. In the same way that in the U.S. when we had prohibition of alcohol, what happened? The mafia was the strongest it's ever been because you, you handed them the market. You gave them the entire market, and you said, go ahead. You guys make money off this. We made it illegal. So legit businesses are not involved in the alcohol market. Now it's all run by mafia bosses underground. And then when there's a dispute, you settle it in the street with guns. So there's violence associated with it when you ban these substances. You know who knows that? AMLO knows that. And so he's saying, no, 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 we're done with this. This is ruining our country. So what we're going to do is we're going to decriminalize all drugs, They're going to move towards recreational marijuana. That will definitely hurt the cartels, which is why I hope AMLO has some bomb-ass security, because that's scary, (laughs) that he's taken such a bold step with the danger that surrounds him. But guess what? This dude is the real deal, man. AMLO is not messing around, dude. He is not messing around even a little bit. So... I'm very happy to announce that AMLO is following through, and he wasn't just all talk on the campaign trail. He wasn't, you know, a neoliberal kind of character where he talked a decent game on the campaign trail, kind of like Obama did, and then he governs in a very centrist status quo kind of way. AMLO's going for it, dog. He's going for it, and I absolutely love to see it. And not only does he want to do it in Mexico, it says it right here. He wants to negotiate with the U.S. to also decriminalize all drugs. Music to my ears. Now let's elect our version of AMLO in this country, Bernie Sanders for president. about um, the terrible decision made by the Trump administration when it comes to drugs used for the death penalty.
So this next story from the Daily Beast is a stark reminder of how we live in a nightmare and everything around you is utterly broken. The Justice Department waded into the debate over lethal injection drugs on Tuesday by arguing that the Food and Drug Administration lacks jurisdiction to evaluate drugs used for the death penalty. A legal opinion put out by the Department's Office of Legal Counsel states that articles intended for use in capital punishment by a state or the federal government cannot be regulated as drugs or devices. The announcement, which could pave the way for lethal injection drugs to face fewer restrictions, came in response to a lawsuit filed by Texas against the FDA in 2017 after the agency blocked state authorities from importing sodium thiopental, an anesthetic used in executions from an overseas distributor. Texas accused the FDA at the time of hindering the state's law enforcement duties. So this is states trying to say, hey, federal government, get off our ass. If we want to execute people using Clorox in a syringe, that's our prerogative. And you got no business getting involved. Just after we learned about the repeated disasters in various states when it comes to the death penalty, there was a European uh, company that used to make the death penalty drugs. It's a three-drug cocktail, and they stopped making them because they were like, we don't even have the death penalty here in Europe. Why are we making them? So they stopped making them. So the U.S. didn't know where to get our death penalty drugs. So states started experimenting with other drugs. And a lot of the other drugs were an epic disaster and didn't work. And so we got the stories of people, you know, squirming in pain for minutes after they got the lethal injection, people foaming at the mouth. There was one execution where they literally called it off after they had done the injection because it didn't work and the guy was still moving around and in pain and they called off the, the uh, execution and then right after they called it off, he died. But he was in pain for like 30 minutes, 40 minutes, just fucking squirming around and it's a nightmare. And the states are saying... Hey, listen, if the FDA wants to step in and get involved and say, dog, you, you can't use that. You got to use that. that. That one's a dangerous drug. You can't use that. Look at what happened when they tried it in Arizona or when they tried it wherever the fuck they tried it. And they had all these problems and side effects. We covered on the show. I just don't remember what states it was in. The botched execution. You can't use that. The states are saying, mm, bitch, we're a state. We get to make our own decisions. Federal government can butt out. And the Trump administration is saying, you know what? You're right. The FDA does not have the right to regulate the death penalty drugs. Pause. Reflect on that. The Food and Drug Administration doesn't have the authority to regulate drugs. What the fuck is that garbage? What is that, bro? What is that? I'll tell you what it is. That is a government... basically giving away its most important duty, which is to uphold law and order and justice and have reasonable rules and regulations in place to make sure that we don't have the worst-case scenario happening. I mean, listen, if, if you ask me, this is a clear violation of the Eighth Amendment protection from cruel and unusual punishment. If we have states administering the death penalty and literally in the process of administering the death penalty, they're using drugs that torture people, that is a violation of the Eighth Amendment, protection from cruel and unusual punishment. If it's not cruel and unusual to kill somebody and also torture them in the process of killing them, 
what the fuck is cruel and what the fuck is unusual. So this, I mean, we live in a nightmare, we live in the twilight zone, and I cannot believe I just read you the story I just read you, but that's what's happening in the United States in the year 2019. All right, we got the last story of the day. If you couldn't tell, I cut out a break there for everybody. Mm. Unfortunately, we end with um, the world coming to an end. (laughs) Almost literally. This is not funny, and all of you should be sad. So we've hit a brand new temperature record. Look at this. It was 84 degrees near the Arctic Ocean this weekend as carbon dioxide hit its highest level in human history. It was 84 degrees in northern Russia. Southern Russia is supposed to be cold. Northern Russia is supposed to be next level cold. 84 degrees. So Time Magazine also says, carbon dioxide concentration in the Earth's atmosphere has hit levels unseen for 3 million years. So we are currently at 415 parts per million. For those of you who aren't familiar with this, according to some scientists, Just crossing the 400 parts per million threshold, that was viewed as the point of no return. So once you cross 400 parts per million, there's no putting that genie back in the bottle. There's no like, oh, that's cool, we'll find a way, we'll, you know, transfer over away from fossil fuels towards green and renewable technology, and it'll all work out. Once you cross 400 parts per million, some would argue that there's no putting the genie back in the bottle. We're already fucked, Bill. We're at 4.15. The concentration of CO2 has been rising by an average of 2.5 parts per million over the last decade. But increased from 2018 to 2019 will be 3 parts per million. Let me repeat that. The concentration of CO2 was rising an average of 2.5 parts per million over the last decade. So it took a decade to raise 2.5 parts per million. It's going to raise three in one year now. 2.5 for 10 years, and now it's three in a year. Oh, goodness. Last time that the parts per million was this high, humans didn't exist yet. We have literally never experienced a world as warm as we're experiencing it right now. Right now. And by the way, this is one of the main reasons why you see really powerful hurricanes. Now we're getting a lot more powerful hurricanes. It's a direct result of this. Just wait, man. You think it's bad now? Wait until we get famine, drought, wars over water, major cities underwater. And all the while, Pompeo and Trump are like, Climate change is bringing us new business opportunities. 
Oh no, they're gonna drill in the Arctic, man. They're gonna drill in the Arctic, dude. That's what's gonna happen. If you try not to think about it, sometimes it gets, it feels good, but then it, reality will smack you in the face eventually. It always catches up at some point. You always get it, you know, you always get walloped over the head with it, even if you go a solid three, four days without thinking about it. Eventually it's like, oh, we're fucked. Uh, the nihilistic side of me goes, takes it one step deeper to feel better about it, where I say, well, I mean, sure, climate change is going to fuck everything and and uh, bring about the next extinction. But, 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 if it wasn't climate change, I mean, eventually the Earth would, it, would be engulfed by the sun anyway. <laughs> now, that is going to happen, but that would be so far out in the future that it's, like, it's ridiculous to talk about it now, but climate change will destroy us way before then. So, it's not that comforting a thought, but in my deepest, darkest moments, sometimes it rears its head, and I go, yeah, okay, we're all going to die anyway, so what are you going to do? But that's not the right way to think about this. What about our kids and our kids' kids and our kids' kids' kids? At some point, they will be living through an apocalyptic scenario. We're just catching the beginning of it now. All right, guys. Guys and gals. We are done with the show. I love y'all. I'll talk to you soon. Everybody enjoy your weekend. I'm out. Peace.